This is Macro Horizons, episode 256, Government Bond Work, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 16th. And as the market appears content with the Fed's progress on the inflation front, all we can say is that Powell's efforts are good enough for government bond work. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the most notable event in the Treasury market was the, as expected, core CPI print of 0.3%. Now, arguably, it was a little bit on the strong side, given that the unofficial consensus was for a high 0.2, but the most remarkable aspect of it wasn't the data itself, but rather how the market responded. Immediately following the CPI data, we saw a decided bull steepening of the yield curve as the market simply doubled down on expectations for a March rate cut. This was somewhat surprising given that the 0.3 was by no means a 0.1 or a 0.2, so should have otherwise implied a continuation of the status quo, i.e. the Fed attempting to delay rate cuts as long as possible. To some degree, we are sympathetic with the interpretation that the progress made on the inflation front over the last several months will put the trajectory of consumer price gains precisely where the Fed would like it to be come the March 20th meeting. Now, we're reminded that there's still two additional CPI prints between now and when the Fed decides whether or not to cut rates in March, but at the end of the day, investors do appear content to go forward on the assumption that inflation will continue to moderate and in March the Fed will begin the process of normalizing rates lower. Now it's important to draw the distinction, certainly from the Fed's perspective, between easing and cutting rates. If the Fed continues to believe that the neutral policy rate is 2.5%, then Powell has up to 300 basis points worth of rate cuts he could potentially deliver before shifting from restrictive to neutral territory to say nothing of shifting from neutral to accommodative, particularly given that the departure point for the Fed's signaling of rate cuts in 2024 has been 75 basis points. Adding another quarter basis point into the mix, by cutting in March wouldn't be too much of a departure from the Fed's previous messaging. There's also an underlying political component. By starting the conversation about rate cuts in December, the Fed has at least made an effort to distance monetary policy from the presidential election. 
that same logic would, at least on the margin, contribute to the case for a March rate cut. Because if the Fed is comfortable claiming victory on inflation, then the Fed can at least attempt to achieve a soft landing. We're reminded that at the beginning of 2023, a soft landing looked far less likely than it does at this moment. Now, there's still certainly a lot of economic uncertainty on the horizon, but at least for a moment, the Goldilocks economy appears poised to stay a little bit longer. December's 0.309% gain in core consumer prices was a bit firmer than the unofficial consensus for a high 0.2% gain, and on an unrounded basis, the second largest monthly gain in core prices since May 2023. But as evidenced by the ensuing rally in two-year yields to fresh year-to-date lows and the market's pricing in of roughly 70% odds of a March rate cut, the inflation data was good enough for the Fed to continue claiming victory in the battle against high core prices. And I'll be the first to concede that given the information contained in both the non-farm payrolls report as well as CPI ahead of time, that I certainly would not have been successful in trading the week just past. The reality is that the market seems very content to push forward with the March rate cut assumption, almost regardless of how the economic data is coming in. And I think that that suggests that the market is at a very specific point in the monetary policy cycle i.e. the market is attempting to force the Fed's hand insofar as pricing in a more aggressive series of rate cuts than the committee is likely to deliver. It will be very telling to see how the market trades on the 2nd of February once we have the January FOMC decision and non-farm payrolls for January in hand. All else being equal, we continue to view the higher than 70% probability of a March rate cut at this stage as being overdone. And given the information we have, while it might be too soon to have a really high conviction opinion on what ultimately comes to pass at the March meeting, it's not off the table that the Fed does feel comfortable to deliver the first rate cut of the cycle, even if we haven't yet seen core PCE drop back to that 2% level. And this gets at a dynamic that we've discussed since the Fed reached terminal and it became increasingly clear that another rate hike wasn't going to happen and what the early days of the cutting campaign would look like. Specifically, that unlike in 2019, when rates maybe were slightly into restrictive territory or neutral at best, given the outright level of Fed funds and the extent to which monetary policy is restrictive, Powell has ample capacity, certainly more than 25 basis points, to bring rates lower while also keeping them in restrictive territory. So by emphasizing the trajectory of inflation and the still strong state of the labor market, the Fed can begin fine-tuning from very restrictive to a bit less restrictive while still not necessarily completely abandoning the fight against inflation. This is not to mention one of the other critical pieces of new information we learned over the past week, which is that the timeline for slowing the pace of the balance sheet rundown is also under consideration as another potential policy tweak to amend the Fed's overall stance. And if there's no other key takeaway since the middle of December, it's that the Fed's pivot has been fully priced in at this stage and perhaps overpriced. Ultimately, it comes down to the data 
and whether or not we do see a New Year's bounce in inflation and or a reacceleration on the jobs front. All else being equal, we would expect that the 4% level in 10-year yields will remain a bit of a focal point as the market absorbs incoming economic data and attempts to read the proverbial tea leaves from monetary policymakers. The shape of the yield curve, however, is a somewhat more significant wild card insofar as this year's big macro trade was always poised to be the bull steepening of the yield curve, and that's precisely how the market chose to trade CPI regardless of our interpretation of it as being on the firm side of the unofficial expectations. And to talk a bit more about what we've learned as it relates to the balance sheet ahead of CPI and coming in from the weekend, it was really Dallas Fed President Lori Logan's speech that dominated the discussion, given that she, who tends to lean a bit more hawkishly, was of the opinion that it will soon be appropriate to begin the discussion around slowing the pace of the Fed's balance sheet runoff. Remember that Logan used to run SOMA at the New York Fed, and so as an important opinion in the overall balance sheet discussion, The market took notice of her opinion that RRP balances don't need to reach zero before the Fed should begin slowing the pace of QT. Now, the reason for this is that not all bank reserves are created equal, and even if an abundant reserves regime is firmly intact in large money center banks, smaller lenders and regional banks might not necessarily have quite as comfortable a cushion as it relates to the state of reserves, and the difference of the dispersion around the financial system as we approach the one-year anniversary of the regional banking crisis and what's widely assumed to be the expiry of the bank term funding program, clearly the funding market and the state of bank reserves has climbed the list of the Fed's concerns. Now, a slower pace of QT matters from a monetary policy perspective, of course, marginally less hawkish, but it's also relevant for Treasury issuance. As it stands, the $60 billion a month in Treasuries that the Fed is running off the balance sheet represents reinvestment, aka money to the Treasury Department, that needs to be raised from the public. Remember, as QT began, the issuance ramifications from less SOMA reinvestment was a big driver of that bear steepening trade, so that means that the inverse logic holds as well. If the Fed is going to start tapering the balance sheet rundown, that means that SOMA is going to be buying more via auction add-on, and that's going to represent money that the Treasury Department is going to be able to use to fund the deficit. And when one thinks about what a $30 billion a month runoff cap might mean over the course of 2024, so say six months for example, that's $180 billion of issuance that the Treasury Department doesn't need to increase auction sizes for. And so as we continue to discuss the issues of term premium, appetite for large Treasury auctions, the Fed's balance sheet plays a very important role in that discussion. The first week of coupon supply in 2024 saw 3s and 30s both stop through, with 10s tailing by just 0.7 basis points. 3s and 10s came ahead of Thursday's CPI release, and I think that considering the event risk posed by the inflation data, those results speak to good demand, and even the long bond auction went well in the wake of CPI. And looking back to the 5.1 basis point tail in November, and we've now seen two stop throughs for 30s since then, should help lessen anxiety around whether there is sufficient ongoing demand for duration, which is a positive as it relates to Yellen's ability to keep upping auction sizes further out the curve. At present, the consensus is for another round of auction size increases in 10s and 30s via the February refunding process on January 31st. 
it is interesting to put this in the context of the evolution of treasury auction sizes over the course of the last six months. One could argue that Yellen's decision not to increase auction sizes as much as expected in the November refunding speaks to a bit more caution on the side of the Treasury Secretary in utilizing longer duration securities in an environment of relatively high rates, certainly versus where we were prior to the pandemic. It will also be notable to see how willing the Treasury Department is to utilize the bill market at a moment where RRP continues to drift lower and lower, and that move carries with it such obvious monetary policy implications, as you pointed out, Ben. And if it wasn't an exciting enough week in the Treasury market, after CPI, geopolitics once again entered the limelight as the U.S. and the U.K. announced military action in Yemen given the ongoing attacks in the commercial shipping lanes in the Red Sea. Traditionally speaking, of course, military action would serve as a flight to quality impulse into treasuries, and arguably that contributed to Thursday afternoon's impressive bid. However, as we learned with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with the conflict in Israel and Palestine, and now with major shipping companies foregoing traveling through the Red Sea altogether, particularly in such an important region for oil production, geopolitical disruptions can't purely be traded from the perspective of a flight to quality impulse. Instead, one also needs to take into consideration the inflationary fallout, both as it relates to oil prices, but also supply chain pressures as channels of commerce are disrupted. If one looks at indicators such as the Baltic Dry Index, shipping costs between major ports around the world, after the encouraging and impressive trend lower that we saw coming out of the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, when supply chain concerns had been all but alleviated, now the fact that it's once again taking longer and becoming more expensive to get goods from point A to point B, one can't rule out the potential for supply-side inflationary pressures to once again begin rising precisely at the point when the market, and maybe the Fed, is ready to begin to declare victory in the fight against inflation. There's no question that it's been a tough week for maritime travel. And air travel. And subway travel. And time travel. In the holiday-shortened week ahead, there's very little on the horizon that is likely to change the market's broader economic and policy outlook. We do have retail sales on Wednesday morning, which is expected to increase four-tenths of a percent. We also have the 20-year auction on Wednesday afternoon, which is $13 billion. The 18 billion 10-year tips on Thursday will also provide investors seeking inflation protection an opportunity at the new bonds. The other major economic data is limited, but it's notable that Friday morning sees the release of the University of Michigan's January survey data. We'll be watching for any indication that forward inflation expectations on the household level have changed. Now, all else being equal, one might assume that given the overall trajectory of inflation, that the survey-based measures would be moderating as well. The caveat here is that there's a high correlation between gasoline prices and consumers' inflation expectations. So given the recent volatility in the energy sector, this will be a space to watch, if nothing else. As far as December's consumption numbers, they do represent the final month of 2023, and given the overall trajectory of spending, the fourth quarter is shaping up to be a much stronger showing for the real economy than one might have otherwise assumed given the strength in Q3. 
The U.S. rates market will also continue to digest the disappointing PPI data for December, which undershot expectations and left estimates for core PCE at 0.1%. This also reinforces, at least on the margin, the case for a March rate cut. To say nothing of pushing the twos, tens, bull steepening even further. Now, clearly, a lot of this is a function of a rally in the two-year sector, but when one considers two-year yields as nothing more than a 24-month rolling window of monetary policy expectations, the price action follows intuitively if one believes that December's developments will translate into softer data on the inflation side during January and February, thereby setting the stage for the first cut in March. Uncertainty and volatility are high as 2024 has gotten underway, and those characteristics are unlikely to change over the course of the next two weeks as the market prepares to hear from the Fed on the 31st of January, which is also month-end, as well as the day that the Treasury Department gives the details about the February refunding process to say nothing of being two days ahead of non-farm payrolls. We've reached the point in this week's episode that we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As we prepare for the third long weekend of the last four weeks, it strikes us that, hey, we could get used to this. But we won't. Thanks for nothing, SIFMA. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.